Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Thanks for joining us as we learn a little bit about Brother Meriwether Lewis. So Meriwether Lewis, uh, 1774 to 1809, and this information comes from the biography.com website. Meriwether Lewis teamed up with William Clark to form the historic Lewis and Clark expedition. Together they explored the lands west of the Mississippi. Who was Meriwether Lewis? Born in 1774 in Virginia, Meriwether Lewis was asked by President Thomas Jefferson in 1801 to act as his private secretary. Jefferson soon made Lewis another offer, to lead an expedition into the lands west of the Mississippi, which he did after enlisting William Clark. With the help of Sacagawea, the team successfully reached the Pacific Ocean in November of 1805. Their journey was famously known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Childhood Explorer and soldier Meriwether Lewis was born on August 18, 1774, near Ivy, Virginia. His parents, Lieutenant William Lewis of Locust Hill and Lucy Meriwether, were of Welsh and English ancestry, respectively. After Lewis's father died from pneumonia, his mother and stepfather, Captain John Marks, moved him and his siblings to Georgia in what is now Oglethorpe County. Lewis spent his childhood in Georgia building his hunting skills and spending most of his time outdoors. However, once he reached his early teens, he would be called back to Virginia under the guardianship of his father's brother to be given a formal education through private tutors. He would go into college, graduating from Liberty Hall, now Washington and Lely University, in 1793. Siblings, Lewis had five siblings, Reuben Lewis, Jane Lewis, Lucinda Lewis, and half-siblings John Hastings Marks and Mary Garland Marks from his mother's second marriage. Life before the Lewis and Clark Expedition As a member of the state militia, Lewis helped to quell the Root Whiskey Rebellion, a Pennsylvania uprising led by farmers against taxes in 1794. The next year, he served with William Clark, a man who would later help him on one of the greatest expeditions of all time. Lewis joined the regular army and achieved the rank of captain. In 1801, he was asked by President Jefferson to act as his private secretary. Jefferson soon made Lewis another offer, to lead an expedition into the lands west of the Mississippi. Already eager to know more about these lands, Jefferson's interest in the area increased with purchase of more than 800,000 square miles of territory from France in 1803, an acquisition known as the Louisiana Purchase. Jefferson asked Lewis to gather information about the plants, animals, and Native Americans of the region. Lewis jumped at the chance and selected his old army friend William Clark to join him as co-commander of the expedition. The Lewis and Clark Expedition Lewis, Clark, and the rest of their expedition began their journey near St. Louis, Missouri in May 1804. This group, often called the Corps of Discovery by historians, faced nearly every obstacle and hardship imaginable on their trip. They braved dangerous waters and harsh weather and endured hunger, illness, injury, and fatigue. Along the way, Lewis kept a detailed journey and collected samples of plants and animals he encountered. Lewis and his expedition received assistance in their mission from many of the native people they met during their journey westward. The Mandans provided them with supplies during their first winter. 
It was during this time that Expedition picked up two new members, Sacagawea and Toussaint Charbonneau. The two acted as interpreters for the expedition, and Sacagawea, Charbonneau's wife, and a Shoshone Indian was able to help get horses for the group later in the journey. Fort Clatsop. The Corps of Discovery reached the Pacific Ocean in November of 1805. They built Fort Clatsop and spent the winter in present-day Oregon. On the way back in 1806, Lewis and Clark split up to explore more territory and look for faster routes home. Lewis and his men faced great danger when a group of Blackfeet Indians sought to steal from the Corps in late July. Two Blackfeet were killed in the ensuing conflict. The next month, Lewis was shot in the thigh by one of his own men during a hunt. Lewis and Clark and their two groups joined up again at the Missouri River and made the rest of the trek to St. Louis together. In total, the expedition traveled roughly 8,000 miles by boat, on foot, and on horseback. After the journey, traveling to Washington, Lewis and the other members of the expedition received a warm welcome from nearly every place they went. Many towns held special events to herald the explorers' return as they passed through. Once reaching the nation's capital, Lewis received payment for his courageous efforts. Along with his salary and 1,600 acres of land, he was named governor of the Louisiana Territory. Lewis also tried to publish the journals that he and Clark wrote during their great adventure. Always prone to dark moods, Lewis began to have a drinking problem and neglected his duties as governor. How did Meriwether Lewis die? Lewis died on October 11, 1809 at an inn near Nashville, Tennessee. He had been on his way to Washington, D.C. at the time. Most historians believe he committed suicide, while a few have contended that he was murdered. Lewis had no family of his own, never having found a wife or father children. Accomplishments? Despite his tragic end, Lewis helped change the face of the United States by exploring a vast, unmapped territory, the American West. His work inspired many others to follow in his footsteps and created great interest in the region. Lewis also advanced scientific knowledge through his careful work detailing numerous plants and animals that were previously unknown to Europeans. And again, that was from Biography.com. The link will be in the show notes. The following article is from lewis-clark.org and is titled Meriwether Lewis, Master Mason. Lewis's Masonic Apron. The Masonic Apron represents the ancient stonemason's craft, which is the allegorical model upon which rests the symbolism and ritual of Freemasonry. The ancient craftsmen were operative or working stonemasons. Members of the fraternity, known as ancient free and accepted masons, are speculative masons. Through speculative masonry, wrote Thomas Smith Webb in 1797, we learn to subdue the passions, act upon the square, keep a tongue of good report, maintain secrecy, and practice charity. Charity is the chief of every social virtue, he continued, and the distinguishing characteristic of our order. Each initiate, upon entering the order, receives a symbolic apron, which is to be worn during all Masonic meetings and rituals. This apron of Lewis's, made of hand-painted silk, backed with linen, measures 14.5 by 16.5 inches, is said to have been in a pocket of his coat when he died. It was passed down from his mother to his sister Jane, and through her descendants to the Grand Lodge of Missouri, whence it was purchased in 1960 by Joseph Hopper, who donated it to the Montana Masonic Foundation of the Grand Lodge, ancient free and accepted masons of Montana in, Hel in Helena. Symbolic Meanings the meanings of some of the symbols on the apron are open to varying interpretations in different Masonic jurisdictions at different times. 
The following are those currently held by the Grand Lodge AF and AM of Montana, provided through the courtesy of Reed Gardner, Grand Secretary. They date back to the early 18th century. Solomon's Temple. The two pillars of the porch of Solomon's Temple represent strength and stability. The pillar at left stands for Boaz, interpreted by some biblical scholars as meaning in strength. That on the right symbolizes Jochen, or God will establish. They represent, respectively, the senior and junior wardens of the lodge. The pillars rest on three stone steps that symbolizes the three ages of man, youth, manhood, and old age, and the three corresponding degrees of the order. The lowest represents the entered apprentice, who is obliged to occupy his mind industriously in the attainment of useful knowledge. The second step stands for the fellow craft mason, who is charged to use his knowledge in the discharge of duty to God, to his own neighbor, and to himself. The topmost step is that of old age, when the master mason may enjoy the reflections consequent on a well-spent life, and die in the hope of glorious immortality. Skull and Crossbones The skull and crossbones is an ancient symbol for death. The comparative crudeness of this example, and the fact that it does not belong in the overall symmetry of the design, suggests that it might have been added after the owner's demise. And just for a brief comment, so again, this portion of the article is talking about the actual apron. So I would suggest, if you haven't done so already, go in and check out the show notes, and you want to look at the apron. It's pretty cool. Bible. At the center of the apron, the Bible is open to chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, of the Gospel according to St. John, the patron saint of Freemasonry. Superimposed is the square that an operative mason would use for testing angles. To the speculative mason, it stands for justice. Atop the square is a compass or divider, which the former employed for measuring equal lines, the latter for restraining prejudice. Candlesticks. Faintly seen on each side and above the Bible are single candles in brass candlesticks, which represent the three stages of the sun, and the seats of the three main officers and guides of a lodge. At one side is the rising sun, represented by the worshipful master, whose seat is on the east side of the lodge. Above is the midday sun in the south, where the junior warden is seated. On the west side is the setting sun, represented by the senior warden's chair. The sun is one of the lesser lights, and the symbol of a master mason. The latter is the stairway to heaven as seen by Jacob in a vision, Genesis 28.10. Its three rungs represent faith, hope, and charity. The globe rests on branches from an acacia tree, symbolizing immortality. The moon, another lesser light, and an emblem of wisdom, looks out from among the seven stars of the constellation's Pleiades. A focal point in the heavens, Job 9, 8-9, Amos 5, 8, Job 38, 31, and 32. The figures on this globe and the one opposite represent heaven and earth, respectively. Lewis's Masonic History The scribe of the Door to Virtue Lodge No. 44 of the ancient free and accepted Masons in Albemarle County, Virginia, recorded on December 31, 1796, that Lieutenant Meriwether Lewis, on furlough from his western Pennsylvania post in the U.S. Infantry, was recommended as a proper person to become a member. Less than one month later, on January 28, 1797, he was elected to membership, initiated as an entered apprentice, and given his apron. On the following evening, he was admitted to the second or fellowcraft degree, and without further examination, promoted at sight, that is, by unanimous ballot, as a master mason. Such meteoric progress through the first three degrees of masonry signified confidence on the part of the most prominent men of Albemarle 
that the 23-year-old Lewis was similarly destined for moral, civic, and political leadership. A little more than two months later, on the 2nd or 3rd of April, members of the Door to Virtue Lodge conferred upon Lewis the degree of past master mason. At the same meeting, two other leading Virginians were elevated to the same status. They were Peter and Samuel Carr, nephews of Thomas Jefferson, whose son-in-law, Governor Randolph, was also in attendance. On October 31, 1799, Lewis was exalted to the sublime degree of a Royal Arch Super Excellent Mason at Widow's Son Lodge in Milton, Virginia, a few miles southeast of Charlottesville. On that occasion, he was given a Royal Arch apron, which is now at the Missouri Historical Society. In 1801, Lewis, who had been promoted to the rank of captain in late 1799, became the private secretary to President Jefferson, and in June of 1803 received his official orders as commander of the expedition to explore the Northwest. Lewis, no doubt, carried his apron during his preparatory travels, as any wayfaring mason would have done. There's reason to believe, for instance, that he attended a lodge in Pittsburgh while awaiting the completion of the barge from July 15th until August 31st, 1803. If he carried a Masonic apron on his expedition to the Pacific, which might have been expected of a Mason of his rank undertaking such a hazardous mission, he did so in total secrecy. Clark's Joins It was at Lewis's encouragement, no doubt, that William Clark joined the new lodge in St. Louis. In fact, Lewis may have begun proselytizing his co-captain during the early months of the expedition. Late in January 1804, Clark copied into his journal a definition of the five sentences from Owen's Dictionary, which was in the company's small reference library. The subject was entirely out of conduct text with the expedition's business at the moment, but the paragraph reads like a precise of a catechism for an entered apprentice. Clark's certificate confirming that status, dated September 18, 1809, is at the Missouri Historical Society. His apron is at the lodge in St. Charles, Missouri. His funeral service on September 1st, 1838, opened with the full Masonic burial rite. And our final article from this episode is from Francis Hunter's American Heroes blog. And it's actually pretty interesting. She gives a lot of uh, the references where she got her information from. The title of the article is Lewis and Clark as Masons. National Treasure, the dim-witted but smashingly successful Nicolas Cage adventure, may not have been good history or a good movie, but it did get one thing right. Freemasonry was an extremely powerful force in early America. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark both were Masons, and for Lewis in particular, the ethics and spiritual values he discovered in the Masonic lodges of Virginia and St. Louis were central to his life. In fact, his identity as a Mason appears to have been weighing on his mind in his last hours on this earth. A little background helps explain how Freemasonry became so central to the lives of Lewis, Clark, and other elite men of early America. How it evolved into a powerful secret society is a subject of some historical dispute. The short version is this. As the Catholic Church locked horns with dissidents and reformers all across Europe, an event known as the Protestant Reformation, the old medieval guilds were taken over by outsiders, mostly intellectuals, well-to-do middle-class men, aristocrats, and clergymen. In a world where taking the wrong side was often fatal, witches and heretics were still being burned, the Inquisition was in full swing, and Galileo was on trial for insisting that the earth revolved around the sun. It seems probable that these men were seeking an underground means to exercise freedom of thought and be able to discuss moral and scientific issues safely. 
Though this movement may have been gradual, modern Freemasonry is generally dated from 1717, when four London lodges amalgamated under the leadership of a Presbyterian minister named James Anderson. At that point, it spread rapidly through Great Britain, Europe, and America. As the decades progressed, Freemasonry dovetailed nicely with the spread of the Enlightenment, a philosophical movement that rejected religious dogma, elevated reason and scientific inquiry, and gave rise to the idea that freedom, democracy, and tolerance should be central to human existence. In fact, it can be said without much exaggeration that truth, justice, and the American way are principles from the Masonic Creed that became embedded in our culture to the point that we now naively believe them to be universal truths shared by all. Freemasonry's religious and spiritual underpinnings were embodied in secret lore that included ethics, philosophy, and degrees men worked to achieve, both to measure their own progress and as a symbol of the passage from youth to manhood to old age and death. The lore incorporates much Christian language and symbolism, and often leads people to conclude erroneously that the Founding Fathers espoused modern-day Christian beliefs. The Symbolism on Lewis's Apron Explain in early 1797, at the age of 22, Meriwether Lewis joined the Door to Virtue Masonic Lodge No. 44 in his home of Albemarle, Virginia. Never one to do anything casually, Lewis threw himself into the fraternity in spite of being an active duty army officer at the time. He rose quickly to Royal Archmason, held office in the lodge, and promoted charitable activities for the men to become involved in. And just because Lewis went west in 1803 doesn't mean he forgot about being a Mason. From some journal notations, it appears that Lewis began recruiting William Clark to join the Masons while the expedition was still preparing to get underway at Camp River Dubois in the winter of 1803-1804. He seems to have continued to reflect upon Masonic ideas while in the wilderness. On August 6, 1805, while exploring the high country near present-day Three Forks, Montana, Lewis named the Jefferson River, then assigned Masonic names to three of its tributaries, dubbing them the Wisdom, Philanthropy, and Philosophy. Lewis noted that the names would commemorate Thomas Jefferson's cardinal virtues, which have so eminently marked that deservedly celebrated character through life. But it should be noted that they may also correspond to the pillars of human virtue embodied in Freemasonry. The names didn't stick, and today the three tributaries are known as the Big Hole River, Ruby River, and Willow Creek. A couple of weeks later, Lewis penned one of his most famous journal passages. The birthday reflections of August 18, 1805, are often seen as a wilderness cri de coeur, a sad foreshadowing of Lewis's death just four years later. But some historians have suggested that they might just as easily be Lewis's attempt to write his own Masonic words to live by. Judge for yourself. And this is the quote. This day I completed my 31st year and conceived that I had in all human probability now existed about half the period which I am to remain in this sublunary world. I reflected that I had as yet done but little, very little indeed, to further the happiness of the human race or to advance the information of the succeeding generation. I viewed with regret the many hours I have spent in indolence and now sorely feel the want of that information which those hours would have given me had they been judiciously expended. But since they are past and cannot be recalled, I dash from me the gloomy thought and resolved in future to redouble my exertions and at least endeavor to promote these two primary objects of human existence by giving them the aid of that portion of talents which nature and fortune have bestowed on me, or in future to live for mankind as I have heretofore lived for myself. In any case, Lewis became involved again in the Masons at its earliest opportunity. 
After returning to civilization, he was appointed governor of the Louisiana Territory, with its seat of government in St. Louis. In late 1808, Lewis helped found St. Louis Lodge No. 111 and became its first forceful master. Lewis was probably a little disappointed that the ever-practical Clark did not take to the Masonic philosophy the way that he had. But Clark did join the Masonic Lodge in St. Louis and attended meetings occasionally. In his later years, Clark made a room in his own house available for lodge meetings, which presumably he also attended. When he died in 1838, Clark had a Masonic funeral. Ironically, Lewis would go to his grave without any ceremony at all. In 1809, he died at the age of 35 at a remote inn on the Natchez Trace in Tennessee, shot to death in an incident that may have been either suicide or murder. There is no record of any sort of a funeral, let alone a Masonic one. Lewis and Clark's other friends evidently decided not to try to recover his body, but simply to let him lie where he fell. It would have been more than 30 years before the Broken Shaft Monument was erected by the state of Tennessee to mark Lewis's grave. However, the symbols of Freemasonry were not far from Lewis's heart on the night that he died, quite literally. Each Mason receives a symbolic work apron that is worn during meetings and rituals. Lewis's was found folded in the pocket of his coat when he died, stained with his blood. The apron was recovered by Lewis's family and eventually ended up as a treasured relic of the Grand Lodge in Helena, Montana. It's worth noting that Freemasonry was and remains a controversial practice. Freemasonry has been denounced by the Catholic Church, which prohibits secret societies. The secretive nature of Freemasonry has led to its being the subject of unpopularity and outright paranoia at various times in history. There have been outlandish claims made about Freemasonry over the years, such as devil worship. Most of these claims originated in a hoax document published in the 1890s and still repeated on the internet today. Freemasonry was banned in Nazi Germany, which murdered between 80,000 and 200,000 Masons. It was illegal in the old Soviet Union and is prohibited in most of the Islamic world. It has been linked into notorious harebrained conspiracy theories such as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the Illuminati, and the New World Order. Freemasonry in the United States failed to respond effectively to the enormous social dislocation caused by World War II, abandoning its philosophical and intellectual underpinnings to become a social and charitable organization. Despite the good works done by prominent Masons such as the Shriners, the organization as a whole is unrecognizable as its former self. Today, the demographics of Masonry, most members are over 70, don't bode well for the future, though there are some recent indications that new lodges are organizing and winning new members by savvy use of the internet. In Europe, Freemasonry remains a strong influence that more closely resembles traditional Freemasonry of the past. So, just uh, to put in a clarification, those are the thoughts of the author, so not necessarily of our lodge or Freemasonry in general or our Grand Lodge. Anyways, uh, hope you enjoy these three articles and continue to listen. And if you haven't listened to the articles on the protocols of the elders of Zion and such, um, as they mention here, there's several things out there that are kind of tied into the anti-Masonry theme, and we've covered several of them in past episodes. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.